Justice Brennan announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to Parts 1, 2, 3A, 3B, 4A, and 5, an opinion with respect to Part 3C in which Justice Marshall, Justice Blackman, and Justice Stevens join, and an opinion with respect to Parts 4B in which Justice White joins. This case requires that we construe for the first time Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as amended June 29, 1982. The specific question to be decided is whether the three-judge district court convened in the Eastern District of North Carolina pursuant to 28 U.S.C. Section 2284A and 42 U.S.C. Section 1973C, correctly held that the use in a legislative redistricting plan of multi-member districts in five North Carolina legislative districts violated Section 2 by impairing the opportunity of Black voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Part 1 Background In April 1982, the North Carolina General Assembly enacted a legislative redistricting plan for the state's Senate and House of Representatives. Appellees, black citizens of North Carolina who are registered to vote, challenged seven districts, one single member, and six multi-member districts, alleging that the redistricting scheme impaired Black citizens' ability to elect representatives of their choice in violation of the 14th and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution and of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. After appellees brought suit, but before trial, Congress amended Section 2. The amendment was largely a response to this court's plurality opinion in Mobile v. Bolden, 1980, which had declared that, in order to establish a violation either of Section 2 or of the 14th or 15th Amendments, minority voters must prove that a contested electoral mechanism was intentionally adopted or maintained by state officials for a discriminatory purpose. Congress substantially revised Section 2 to make clear that a violation could be proved by showing discriminatory effect alone and to establish as the relevant legal standard the results test applied by this court in White v. Register, 1973 and by other federal courts before Bolden. Section 2, as amended, reads as follows. A. No voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard, practice, or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color, or in contravention of the guarantees set forth in Section 4, F, 
2 as provided in subsection B. B. A violation of subsection A is established if, based on the totality of circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens protected by subsection A in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. The extent to which members of a protected class have been elected to office in the state or political subdivision is one circumstance which may be considered, provided that nothing in this section establishes a right to have members of a protected class elected in numbers equal to their proportion in the population. The Senate Judiciary Committee Majority Report, accompanying the bill that amended Section 2, elaborates on the circumstances that might be probative of a Section 2 violation, noting the following typical factors. 1. The extent of any history of official discrimination in the state or political subdivision that touched the right of the members of the minority group to register, to vote, or otherwise to participate in the democratic process. 2. The extent to which voting in the elections of the state or political subdivision is racially polarized. 3. The extent to which the state or political subdivision has used unusually large election districts majority vote requirements, anti-single-shot provisions, or other voting practices or procedures that may enhance the opportunity for discrimination against the minority group. 4. If there is a candidate slating process, whether the members of the minority group have been denied access to that process. 5. The extent to which members of the minority group in the state or political subdivision bear the effects of discrimination in such areas as education, employment, and health, which hinder their ability to participate effectively in the political process. 6. Whether political campaigns have been characterized by overt or subtle racial appeals. 7. The extent to which members of the minority group have been elected to public office in the jurisdiction. Additional factors that in some cases have had probative value as part of plaintiff's evidence to establish violation are whether there is a significant lack of responsiveness on the part of elected officials to the particularized needs of the members of the minority group whether the policy underlying the state or political subdivision's use of such voting qualification, prerequisite to voting, or standard, practice, or procedure, is tenuous. 
the district court applied the totality of the circumstances test set forth in Section 2B to Appellee's statutory claim and, relying principally on the factors outlined in the Senate report, held that the redistricting scheme violated Section 2 because it resulted in the dilution of black citizens' votes in all seven disputed districts. In light of this conclusion, the court did not reach Appellee's constitutional claims. Preliminarily, the court found that black citizens constituted a distinct population and registered voter minority in each challenged district. The court noted that at the time the multi-member districts were created, there were concentrations of black citizens within the boundaries of each that were sufficiently large and contiguous to constitute effective voting majorities in single-member districts lying wholly within the boundaries of the multi-member districts. With respect to the challenged single-member district, Senate District No. 2, the court also found that there existed a concentration of black citizens within its boundaries and within those of adjoining Senate District No. 6 that was sufficient in numbers and in contiguity to constitute an effective voting majority in a single-member district. The district court then proceeded to find that the following circumstances combined with the multi-member districting scheme to result in the dilution of black citizens' votes. First, the court found that North Carolina had officially discriminated against its black citizens with respect to their exercise of the voting franchise from approximately 1900 to 1970 by employing at different times a poll tax, a literacy test, a prohibition against bullet single-shot voting, and designated seat plans for multi-member districts. The court observed that even after the removal of direct barriers to black voter registration, such as the poll tax and literacy test, black voter registration remained relatively depressed. In 1982, only 52.7% of age-qualified blacks statewide were registered to vote, whereas 66.7% of whites were registered. The district court found these statewide depressed levels of black voter registration to be present in all of the disputed districts and to be traceable, at least in part, to the historical pattern of statewide official discrimination. Second, the court found that historic discrimination in education, housing, employment, and health services had resulted in a lower socioeconomic status for North Carolina blacks as a group than for whites. The court concluded that this lower status gives both rise to special group interests and hinders blacks' ability to participate effectively in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Third, the court considered other voting procedures that may operate to lessen the opportunity of black voters to elect candidates of their choice. 
It noted that North Carolina has a majority vote requirement for primary elections, and while acknowledging that no black candidate for election to the state general assembly had failed to win solely because of this requirement, the court concluded that it nonetheless presents a continuing practical impediment to the opportunity of black voting minorities to elect candidates of their choice. The court also remarked on the fact that North Carolina does not have a subdistrict residency requirement for members of the General Assembly elected from multi-member districts, a requirement which the court found could offset, to some extent, the disadvantages minority voters often experience in multi-member districts. Fourth, the court found that white candidates in North Carolina have encouraged voting along color lines by appealing to racial prejudice. It noted that the record is replete with specific examples of racial appeals ranging in style from overt and blatant to subtle and furtive, and date from the 1890s to the 1984 campaign for a seat in the United States Senate. The court determined that the use of racial appeals in political campaigns in North Carolina persists to the present day, and that its current effect is to lessen to some degree the opportunity of black citizens to participate effectively in the political processes and to elect candidates of their choice. Fifth, the court examined the extent to which blacks have been elected to office in North Carolina, both statewide and in the challenge districts. It found, among other things, that prior to World War II, only one black had been elected to public office in this century. While recognizing that it has now become possible for black citizens to be elected to office at all levels of state government in North Carolina, the court found that, in comparison to white candidates running for the same office, black candidates are at a disadvantage in terms of relative probability of success. It also found that the overall rate of black electoral success has been minimal in relation to the percentage of blacks in the total state population. For example, the court noted from 1971 to 1982, there were at any given time only two to four blacks in the 120-member House of Representatives. That is, only 1.6% to 3.3% of House members were Black. From 1975 to 1983, there were, at any one time, only one or two Blacks in the 50-member State Senate. That is only 2% to 4% of State Senators were Black. By contrast, at the time of the District Court's opinion, Blacks constituted about 22.4% of the total state population. With respect to the success in this century of Black candidates in the contested districts, the court found that only one Black had been elected to House District 36 after this lawsuit began. 
Similarly, only one Black had served in the Senate from District 22 from 1975 to 1980. Before the 1982 election, a Black was elected only twice to the House from District 39, part of Forsyth County. In the 1982 contest, two Blacks were elected. Since 1973, a Black citizen had been elected each two-year term to the House from District 23, Durham County, but no Black had been elected to the Senate from Durham County. In House District 21, Wake County, a Black had been elected twice to the House, and another Black served two terms in the State Senate. No Black had ever been elected to the House or Senate from the area covered by House District Number 8, and no Black person had ever been elected to the Senate from the area covered by Senate District Number 2. The court did acknowledge the improved success of Black candidates in the 1982 elections, in which 11 Blacks were elected to the State House of Representatives, including five Blacks from the multi-member districts at issue here. However, the court pointed out that the 1982 election was conducted after the commencement of this litigation. The court found the circumstances of the 1982 election sufficiently aberrational and the success by Black candidates too minimal and too recent in relation to the long history of complete denial of elective opportunities to support the conclusion that Black voters' opportunities to elect representatives of their choice were not impaired. Finally, the court considered the extent to which voting in the challenge districts was racially polarized, based on statistical evidence presented by expert witnesses, supplemented to some degree by the testimony of lay witnesses, the court found that all of the challenge districts exhibit severe and persistent racially polarized voting. Based on these findings, the court declared the contested portions of the 1982 redistricting plan violative of Section 2, and enjoined appellants from conducting elections pursuant to those portions of the plan. Appellants, the Attorney General of North Carolina and others, took a direct appeal to this court pursuant to 28 U.S.C. Section 1253 with respect to five of the multi-member districts, House Districts 21, 23, 36, and 39, and Senate District 22. Appellants argue, first, that the district court utilized a legally incorrect standard in determining whether the contested districts exhibit racial block voting to an extent that is cognizable under Section 2. Second, they contend that the court used an incorrect definition of racially polarized voting and thus erroneously relied on statistical evidence that was not probative of polarized voting. Third, they maintain that the court assigned the wrong weight 
to evidence of some black candidates' electoral success. Finally, they argue that the trial court erred in concluding that these multi-member districts result in black citizens having less opportunity than their white counterparts to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. We noted probable jurisdiction and now affirm with respect to all of the districts except House District 23. With regard to District 23, the judgment of the district court is reversed. Part 2 Section 2 and Vote Dilution Through Use of Multi-Member Districts An understanding both of Section 2 and of the way in which multi-member districts can operate to impair Blacks' ability to elect representatives of their choice is prerequisite to an evaluation of appellants' contentions. First, then, we review amended Section 2 and its legislative history in some detail. Second, we explain the theoretical basis for appellees' claim of vote dilution. Section A. Section 2 and its legislative history. Subsection 2A prohibits all states and political subdivisions from imposing any voting qualifications or prerequisites to voting, or any standards, practices, or procedures which result in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote of any citizen who is a member of a protected class of racial and language minorities. Subsection 2b establishes that Section 2 has been violated where the totality of circumstances reveals that the political processes leading to nomination or election are not equally open to participation by members of a protected class, in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. While explaining that the extent to which members of a protected class have been elected to office in the state or political subdivision is one circumstance which may be considered in evaluating an alleged violation. Section 2B cautions that nothing in Section 2 establishes a right to have members of a protected class elected in numbers equal to their proportion in the population. The Senate report, which accompanied the 1982 amendments, elaborates on the nature of Section 2 violations and on the proof required to establish these violations. First and foremost, the report dispositively rejects the position of the plurality in Mobile v. Bolden, which required proof that the contested electoral practice or mechanism was adopted or maintained with the intent to discriminate against minority voters. The intent test was repudiated for three principal reasons. It is unnecessarily divisive 
because it involves charges of racism on the part of individual officials or entire communities. It places an inordinately difficult burden of proof on plaintiffs, and it asks the wrong question. The right question, as the report emphasizes repeatedly, is whether, as a result of the challenged practice or structure, plaintiffs do not have an equal opportunity to participate in the political processes and to elect candidates of their choice. In order to answer this question, a court must assess the impact of the contested structure or practice on minority electoral opportunities on the basis of objective factors. The Senate report specifies factors which typically may be relevant to a Section 2 claim, the history of voting-related discrimination in the state or political subdivision, the extent to which voting in the elections of the state or political subdivision is racially polarized, the extent to which the state or political subdivision has used voting practices or procedures that tend to enhance the opportunity for discrimination against the minority group, such as unusually large election districts, majority vote requirements, and prohibitions against bullet voting, the exclusion of members of the minority group from candidate slating processes, the extent to which minority group members bear the effects of past discrimination in areas such as education, employment, and health, which hinder their ability to participate effectively in the political process, the use of overt or subtle racial appeals in political campaigns, and the extent to which members of the minority group have been elected to public office in the jurisdiction. The report notes also that evidence demonstrating that elected officials are unresponsive to the particularized needs of the members of the minority group, and that the policy underlying the state's or the political subdivision's use of the contested practice or structure is tenuous, may have probative value. The report stresses, however, that this list of typical factors is neither comprehensive nor exclusive. While the enumerated factors will often be pertinent to certain types of Section 2 violations, particularly to vote dilution claims, other factors may also be relevant and may be considered. Furthermore, the Senate Committee observed that there is no requirement that any particular number of factors be proved, or that a majority of them point one way or the other. Rather, the committee determined that the question whether the political processes are equally open depends upon a searching, practical evaluation of the past and present reality. And on a functional view of the political process. Although the Senate report espouses a flexible, fact-intensive test for Section 2 violations, it limits the circumstances under which Section 2 violations may be proved in three ways. First, 
electoral devices such as at-large elections may not be considered per se violative of Section 2. Plaintiffs must demonstrate that, under the totality of the circumstances, the devices result in unequal access to the electoral process. Second, the conjunction of an allegedly dilutive electoral mechanism and the lack of proportional representation alone does not establish a violation. Third, the results test does not assume the existence of racial block voting. Plaintiffs must prove it. Section B. Vote Dilution Through the Use of Multi-Member Districts Appellees contend that the legislative decision to employ multi-member rather than single-member districts in the contested jurisdictions dilutes their votes by submerging them in a white majority, thus impairing their ability to elect representatives of their choice. The essence of a Section 2 claim is that a certain electoral law, practice, or structure interacts with social and historical conditions to cause an inequality in the opportunities enjoyed by black and white voters to elect their preferred representatives. This court has long recognized that multi-member districts and at-large voting schemes may operate to minimize or cancel out the voting strength of racial minorities in the voting population. The theoretical basis for this type of impairment is that where minority and majority voters consistently prefer different candidates, the majority, by virtue of its numerical superiority, will regularly defeat the choices of minority voters. Multi-member districts and at-large election schemes, however, are not per se violative of minority voters' rights. Minority voters who contend that the multi-member form of districting violates Section 2 must prove that the use of a multi-member electoral structure operates to minimize or cancel out their ability to elect their preferred candidates. While many or all of the factors listed in the Senate report may be relevant to a claim of vote dilution, through submergence in multi-member districts, unless there is a conjunction of the following circumstances, the use of multi-member districts generally will not impede the ability of minority voters to elect representatives of their choice. Stated succinctly, a block voting majority must usually be able to defeat candidates supported by a politically cohesive geographically insular minority group. These circumstances are necessary preconditions for multi-member districts to operate to impair minority voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice for the following reasons. First, the minority group must be able to demonstrate that it is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single-member district. If it is not, as would be the case in a substantially integrated district, 
the multi-member form of the district cannot be responsible for minority voters' inability to elect its candidates. Second, the minority group must be able to show that it is politically cohesive. If the minority group is not politically cohesive, it cannot be said that the selection of a multi-member electoral structure thwarts distinctive minority group interests. Third, the minority must be able to demonstrate that the white majority votes sufficiently as a block to enable it in the absence of special circumstances, such as the minority candidate running unopposed, usually to defeat the minority's preferred candidate. In establishing this last circumstance, the minority group demonstrates that submergence in a white multi-member district impedes its ability to elect its chosen representatives. Finally, we observe that the usual predictability of the majority's success distinguishes structural dilution from the mere loss of an occasional election. Part 3. Racially Polarized Voting Having stated the general legal principles relevant to claims that Section 2 has been violated through the use of multi-member districts, we turn to the arguments of appellants and of the United States as amicus curiae, addressing racially polarized voting. First, we describe the district court's treatment of racially polarized voting. Next, we consider appellants' claim that the district court used an incorrect legal standard to determine whether racial block voting in the contested districts was sufficiently severe to be cognizable as an element of a Section 2 claim. Finally, we consider appellants' contention that the trial court employed an incorrect definition of racially polarized voting and thus erroneously relied on statistical evidence that was not probative of racial block voting. Section A. The District Court's Treatment of Racially Polarized Voting The investigation conducted by the District Court into the question of racial block voting credited some testimony of lay witnesses but relied principally on statistical evidence presented by appellees' expert witnesses, in particular that offered by Dr. Bernard Groffman. Dr. Groffman collected and evaluated data from 53 General Assembly primary and general elections involving black candidacies. These elections were held over a period of three different election years in the six originally challenged multi-member districts. Dr. Groffman subjected the data to two complementary methods of analysis, extreme case analysis and bivariate ecological regression analysis, in order to determine whether blacks and whites in these districts differed in their voting behavior. These analytic techniques yielded data concerning the voting patterns of the two races, including estimates of the percentages of members of each race who voted for black candidates. The court's initial consideration of these data took the form of a three-part inquiry. 
Did the data reveal any correlation between the race of the voter and the selection of certain candidates? Was the revealed correlation statistically significant? And was the difference in black and white voting patterns substantively significant? The district court found that blacks and whites generally preferred different candidates, and on that basis, found voting in the districts to be racially correlated. The court accepted Dr. Groffman's expert opinion that the correlation between the race of the voter and the voter's choice of certain candidates was statistically significant. Finally, adopting Dr. Groffman's terminology, the court found that in all but two of the 53 elections, the degree of racial block voting was so marked as to be substantively significant in the sense that the results of the individual election would have been different depending upon whether it had been held among only the white voters or only the black voters. The court also reported its findings both in tabulated numerical form and in written form that a high percentage of black voters regularly supported black candidates and that most white voters were extremely reluctant to vote for black candidates. The court then considered the relevance to the existence of legally significant white block voting of the fact that black candidates have won some elections. It determined that in most instances, special circumstances such as incumbency and lack of opposition, rather than a diminution in usually severe white block voting, accounted for these candidates' success. The court also suggested that black voters' reliance on bullet voting was a significant factor in their successful efforts to elect candidates of their choice. Based on all of the evidence before it, the trial court concluded that each of the districts experienced racially polarized voting in a persistent and severe degree. Section B. The degree of block voting that is legally significant under Section 2. Appellant's Arguments. North Carolina and the United States argue that the test used by the district court to determine whether voting patterns in the disputed districts are racially polarized to an extent cognizable under Section 2 will lead to results that are inconsistent with congressional intent. North Carolina maintains that the court considered legally significant racially polarized voting to occur whenever less than 50% of the white voters cast a ballot for the black candidate. Appellants also argue that racially polarized voting is legally significant only when it always results in the defeat of black candidates. The United States, on the other hand, isolates a single line in the court's opinion and identifies it as the court's complete test. According to the United States, the district court adopted a standard under which legally significant racial block voting is deemed to exist whenever the results of the individual election would have been different 
depending upon whether it had been held among only the white voters or only the black voters in the election. We read the district court opinion differently. The Standard for Legally Significant Racial Block Voting The Senate report states that the extent to which voting in the elections of the state or political subdivision is racially polarized is relevant to a vote dilution claim. Further, courts and commentators agree that racial block voting is a key element of a vote dilution claim. Because, as we explained below, the extent of block voting necessary to demonstrate that a minority's ability to elect its preferred representatives is impaired varies according to several factual circumstances. The degree of block voting which constitutes the threshold of legal significance will vary from district to district. Nonetheless, it is possible to state some general principles, and we proceed to do so. The purpose of inquiring into the existence of racially polarized voting is twofold to ascertain whether minority group members constitute a politically cohesive unit and to determine whether whites vote sufficiently as a block, usually to defeat the minority's preferred candidates. Thus, the question whether a given district experiences legally significant racially polarized voting requires discrete inquiries into minority and white voting practices a showing that a significant number of minority group members usually vote for the same candidates is one way of proving the political cohesiveness necessary to a vote dilution claim and consequently establishes minority block voting within the context of Section 2. And in general, a white block vote that normally will defeat the combined strength of minority support plus white crossover votes, rises to the level of legally significant white block voting. The amount of white block voting that can generally minimize or cancel black voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice, however, will vary from district to district according to a number of factors, including the nature of the allegedly diluted electoral mechanism, the presence or absence of other potentially dilutive electoral devices, such as majority vote requirements, designated posts, and prohibitions against bullet voting, the percentage of registered voters in the district who are members of the minority group, the size of the district, and in multi-member districts, the number of seats open, and the number of candidates in the field. Because loss of political power through vote dilution is distinct from the mere inability to win a particular election, a pattern of racial block voting that extends over a period of time is more probative of a claim that a district experiences legally significant polarization than are the results of a single election. 
Also for this reason, in a district where elections are shown usually to be polarized, the fact that racially polarized voting is not present in one or a few individual elections does not necessarily negate the conclusion that the district experiences legally significant block voting. Furthermore, the success of a minority candidate in a particular election does not necessarily prove that the district did not experience polarized voting in that election. Special circumstances, such as the absence of an opponent, incumbency, or the utilization of bullet voting, may explain minority electoral success in a polarized contest. As must be apparent, the degree of racial block voting that is cognizable as an element of a Section 2 vote dilution claim will vary according to a variety of factual circumstances. Consequently, there is no simple doctrinal test for the existence of legally significant racial block voting. However, the foregoing general principles should provide courts with substantial guidance in determining whether evidence that black and white voters generally prefer different candidates rises to the level of legal significance under Section 2. Standard Utilized by the District Court The District Court clearly did not employ the simplistic standard identified by North Carolina. Legally significant block voting occurs whenever less than 50% of the white voters cast a ballot for the black candidate. And, although the District Court did utilize the measure of substantive significance that the United States ascribes to it, the results of the individual election would have been different depending on whether it had been held among only the white voters or only the black voters. The court did not reach its ultimate conclusion that the degree of racial block voting present in each district is legally significant through mechanical reliance on this standard. While the court did not phrase the standard for legally significant racial block voting exactly as we do, a fair reading of the court's opinion reveals that the court's analysis conforms to our view of the proper legal standard. The district court's findings concerning black support for black candidates in the five multi-member districts at issue here clearly establish the political cohesiveness of black voters. As is apparent from the district court's tabulated findings, reproduced in Appendix A to Opinion, black voters' support for black candidates was overwhelming in almost every election. In all but five of 16 primary elections, black support for black candidates ranged between 71% and 92%, and in the general elections, black support for black Democratic candidates ranged between 87% and 96%. In sharp contrast to its findings of strong black support for black candidates, the district court found that a substantial majority of white voters would rarely, if ever, vote for a black candidate. 
In the primary elections, white support for black candidates ranged between 8% and 50%, and in the general elections, it ranged between 28% and 49%. The court also determined that, on average, 81.7% of white voters did not vote for any black candidate in the primary elections. In the general elections, white voters almost always ranked black candidates either last or next to last in the multi-candidate field, except in heavily Democratic areas where white voters consistently ranked black candidates last among the Democrats, if not last or next to last among all candidates. The court further observed that approximately two-thirds of white voters did not vote for black candidates in general elections, even after the candidate had won the Democratic primary, and the choice was to vote for a Republican or for no one. While the district court did not state expressly that the percentage of whites who refused to vote for black candidates in the contested districts would in the usual course of events, result in the defeat of the minority's candidates. That conclusion is apparent both from the court's factual findings and from the rest of its analysis. First, with the exception of House District 23, the trial court's findings clearly show that black voters have enjoyed only minimal and sporadic success in electing representatives of their choice. Second, where black candidates won elections, the court closely examined the circumstances of those elections before concluding that the success of these blacks did not negate other evidence, derived from all of the elections studied in each district, that legally significant racially polarized voting exists in each district. For example, the court took account of the benefits incumbency and running essentially unopposed conferred on some of the successful black candidates, as well as of the very different order of preference blacks and whites assigned black candidates in reaching its conclusion that legally significant racial polarization exists in each district. We conclude that the district court's approach, which tested data derived from three election years in each district, and which revealed that blacks strongly supported black candidates, while to the black candidates' usual detriment, whites rarely did, satisfactorily addresses each facet of the proper legal standard. Section C. Evidence of Racially Polarized Voting Appellant's Argument North Carolina and the United States also contest the evidence upon which the district court relied in finding that voting patterns in the challenge districts were racially polarized. They argue that the term racially polarized voting must, as a matter of law, refer to voting patterns for which the principal cause is race. They contend that the district court utilized a legally incorrect definition of racially polarized voting by relying on bivariate statistical analyses, which merely demonstrated a correlation between the race of the voter and the level of voter support for certain candidates, 
but which did not prove that race was the primary determinant of voters' choices. According to appellants and the United States, only multiple regression analysis, which can take account of other variables which might also explain voters' choices, such as party affiliation, age, religion, income, incumbency, education, campaign expenditures, media use measured by cost, name identification, or distance that the candidate lived from a particular precinct can prove that race was the primary determinant of voter behavior. Whether appellants and the United States believe that it is the voter's race or the candidate's race that must be the primary determinant of the voter's choice is unclear. Indeed, their catalogs of relevant variables suggest both. Age, religion, income, and education seem most relevant to the voter. Incumbency, campaign expenditures, name identification, and media use are pertinent to the candidate. And party affiliation could refer both to the voter and the candidate. In either case, we disagree. For purposes of Section 2, the legal concept of racially polarized voting incorporates neither causation nor intent. It means simply that the race of voters correlates with the selection of a certain candidate or candidates. That is, it refers to the situation where different races or minority language groups vote in blocks for different candidates. As we demonstrate, Appellant's theory of racially polarized voting would thwart the goals Congress sought to achieve when it amended Section 2 and would prevent courts from performing the functional analysis of the political process. And the searching practical evaluation of the past and present reality mandated by the Senate report. Causation Irrelevant to Section 2 Inquiry The first reason we reject appellant's argument that racially polarized voting refers to voting patterns that are in some way caused by race rather than to voting patterns that are merely correlated with the race of the voter is that the reasons black and white voters vote differently have no relevance to the central inquiry of Section 2. By contrast, the correlation between race of voter and the selection of certain candidates is crucial to that inquiry. Both Section 2 itself and the Senate report make clear that the critical question in a Section 2 claim is whether the use of a contested electoral practice or structure results in members of a protected group having less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. As we explained, multi-member districts may impair the ability of blacks to elect representatives of their choice where blacks vote sufficiently as a block as to be able to elect their preferred candidates in a black majority, single-member district and where a white majority votes sufficiently as a block, usually, to defeat the candidates chosen by blacks. 
It is the difference between the choices made by blacks and whites, not the reasons for that difference, that results in blacks having less opportunity than whites to elect their preferred representatives. Consequently, we conclude that under the results test of Section 2, only the correlation between race of voter and selection of certain candidates, not the causes of the correlation, matters. The irrelevance to a Section 2 inquiry of the reasons why black and white voters vote differently supports by itself our rejection of appellant's theory of racially polarized voting. However, their theory contains other equally serious flaws that merit further attention. As we demonstrate below, the addition of irrelevant variables distorts the equation and yields results that are indisputably incorrect under Section 2 and the Senate report. Race of Voter as Primary Determinant of Voter Behavior Appellants and the United States contend that the legal concept of racially polarized voting refers not to voting patterns that are merely correlated with the voter's race, but to voting patterns that are determined primarily by the voter's race, rather than by the voter's other socioeconomic characteristics. The first problem with this argument is that it ignores the fact that members of geographically insular racial and ethnic groups frequently share socioeconomic characteristics, such as income level, employment status, amount of education, housing and other living conditions, religion, language, and so forth. Where such characteristics are shared, race or ethnic group not only denotes color or place of origin, it also functions as a shorthand notation for common social and economic characteristics. Appellant's definition of racially polarized voting is even more pernicious where shared characteristics are causally related to race or ethnicity. The opportunity to achieve high employment status and income, for example, is often influenced by the presence or absence of racial or ethnic discrimination. A definition of racially polarized voting which holds that Black block voting does not exist when black voters' choice of certain candidates is most strongly influenced by the fact that the voters have low incomes and menial jobs, when the reason most of those voters have menial jobs and low incomes is attributable to past or present racial discrimination, runs counter to the Senate report's instruction to conduct a searching and practical evaluation of past and present reality, and interferes with the purpose of the Voting Rights Act to eliminate the negative effects of past discrimination on the electoral opportunities of minorities. Furthermore, under appellant's theory of racially polarized voting, even uncontrovertible evidence that candidates strongly preferred by black voters are always defeated by a block voting white majority would be dismissed for failure to prove racial polarization 
whenever the black and white populations could be described in terms of other socioeconomic characteristics. To illustrate, assume a racially mixed urban multi-member district in which blacks and whites possess the same socioeconomic characteristics that the record in this case attributes to blacks and whites in Halifax County, a part of Senate District 2. The annual mean income for blacks in this district is $10,465, and 47.8% of the black community lives in poverty. More than half, 51.5% of black adults over the age of 25, have only an eighth grade education or less. Just over half of the black citizens reside in their own homes. 48.9% live in rental units, and almost a third of all black households are without a car. In contrast, only 12.6% of the whites in the district live below the poverty line. Whites enjoy a mean income of $19,042. White residents are better educated than blacks. Only 25.6% of whites over the age of 25 have only an 8th grade education or less. Furthermore, only 26.2% of whites live in rental units, and only 10.2% live in households with no vehicle available. As is the case in Senate District 2, blacks in this hypothetical urban district have never been able to elect a representative of their choice. According to Appellant's theory of racially polarized voting, proof that black and white voters in this hypothetical district regularly choose different candidates and that the blacks' preferred candidates regularly lose could be rejected as not probative of racial block voting. The basis for the rejection would be that blacks chose a certain candidate not principally because of their race, but principally because this candidate best represented the interests of residents who, because of their low incomes, are particularly interested in government-subsidized health and welfare services, who are generally poorly educated and thus share an interest in job training programs, who are, to a greater extent than the white community, concerned with rent control issues, and who favor major public transportation expenditures. Similarly, whites would be found to have voted for a different candidate, not principally because of their race, but primarily because that candidate best represented the interests of residents who, due to their education and income levels, and to their property and vehicle ownership, favor gentrification low residential property taxes, and extensive expenditures for street and highway improvements. Congress could not have intended that courts employ this definition of racial block voting. First, this definition leads to results that are inconsistent with the effects test adopted by Congress when it amended Section 2 and with the Senate report's admonition that courts take a functional view of the political process and conduct a searching and practical evaluation of reality. A test for racially polarized voting that denies the fact that race and socioeconomic characteristics are often closely correlated 
permits neither a practical evaluation of reality nor a functional analysis of vote dilution. And, contrary to Congress's intent in adopting the results test, appellants' proposed definition could result in the inability of minority voters to establish a critical element of a vote dilution claim, even though both races engage in monolithic block voting, and generations of black voters have been unable to elect a representative of their choice. Second, Appellant's interpretation of racially polarized voting creates an irreconcilable tension between their proposed treatment of socioeconomic characteristics in the block voting context and the Senate report's statement that the extent to which members of the minority group bear the effects of discrimination in such areas as education, employment, and health may be relevant to a Section 2 claim. We can find no support in either logic or the legislative history for the anomalous conclusion to which appellant's position leads that Congress intended, on the one hand, that proof that a minority group is predominantly poor, uneducated, and unhealthy should be considered a factor tending to prove a Section 2 violation, but that Congress intended, on the other hand, that proof that the same socioeconomic characteristics greatly influence black voters' choice of candidates should destroy these voters' ability to establish one of the most important elements of a vote dilution claim. Race of Candidate as Primary Determinant of Voter Behavior North Carolina's and the United States' suggestion that racially polarized voting means that voters select or reject candidates principally on the basis of the candidate's race is also misplaced. First, both the language of Section 2 and a functional understanding of the phenomenon of vote dilution mandate the conclusion that the race of the candidate per se is irrelevant to racial block voting analysis. Section 2B states that a violation is established if it can be shown that members of a protected minority group have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to elect representatives of their choice. Because both minority and majority voters often select members of their own race as their preferred representatives, it will frequently be the case that a black candidate is the choice of blacks, while a white candidate is the choice of whites. Indeed, the facts of this case illustrate that tendency. Blacks preferred black candidates, whites preferred white candidates. Thus, as a matter of convenience, we and the district court may refer to the preferred representative of black voters as the black candidate, and to the preferred representative of white voters as the white candidate. Nonetheless, the fact that race of voter and race of candidate is often correlated is not directly pertinent to a Section 2 inquiry. Under Section 2, it is the status of the candidate 
as the chosen representative of a particular racial group, not the race of the candidate that is important. An understanding of how vote dilution through submergence in a white majority works leads to the same conclusion. The essence of a submergence claim is that minority group members prefer certain candidates whom they could elect were it not for the interaction of the challenged electoral law or structure with a white majority that votes as a significant block for different candidates. Thus, as we explained in Part 3, the existence of racial block voting is relevant to a vote dilution claim in two ways. Block voting by blacks tends to prove that the black community is politically cohesive. That is, it shows that blacks prefer certain candidates whom they could elect in a single-member black majority district. Block voting by a white majority tends to prove that blacks will generally be unable to elect representatives of their choice. Clearly, only the race of the voter, not the race of the candidate, is relevant to vote dilution analysis. Second, appellant's suggestion that racially polarized voting refers to voting patterns where whites vote for white candidates because they prefer members of their own race or are hostile to blacks as opposed to voting patterns where whites vote for white candidates because the white candidates spent more on their campaigns, utilized more media coverage, and thus enjoyed greater name recognition than the black candidates, fails for another independent reason. This argument, like the argument that the race of the voter must be the primary determinant of the voter's ballot, is inconsistent with the purposes of Section 2 and would render meaningless the Senate report factor that addresses the impact of low socioeconomic status on a minority group's level of political participation. Congress intended that the Voting Rights Act eradicate inequalities in political opportunities that exist due to the vestigial effects of past purposeful discrimination. Both this court and other federal courts have recognized that political participation by minorities tends to be depressed where minority group members suffer effects of prior discrimination, such as inferior education, poor employment opportunities, and low incomes. The Senate report acknowledges this tendency and instructs that the extent to which members of the minority group bear the effects of discrimination in such areas as education, employment, and health, which hinder their ability to participate effectively in the political process, is a factor which may be probative of unequal opportunity to participate in the political process and to elect representatives. Courts and commentators have recognized further that candidates generally must spend more money in order to win election in a multi-member district than in a single-member district. If, because of inferior education and poor employment opportunities, blacks earn less than whites, they will not be able to provide the candidates of their choice with the same level of financial support that whites can 
provide theirs. Thus, electoral losses by candidates preferred by the Black community may well be attributable in part to the fact that their white opponents outspent them. But the fact is that, in this instance, the economic effects of prior discrimination have combined with the multi-member electoral structure to afford blacks less opportunity than whites to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. It would be both anomalous and inconsistent with congressional intent to hold that, on the one hand, the effects of past discrimination which hinder blacks' ability to participate in the political process tend to prove a Section 2 violation, while holding, on the other hand, that where these same effects of past discrimination deter whites from voting for blacks, blacks cannot make out a crucial element of a vote dilution claim. Racial animosity as primary determinant of voter behavior. Finally, we reject the suggestion that racially polarized voting refers only to white block voting, which is caused by white voters' racial hostility toward black candidates. To accept this theory would frustrate the goals Congress sought to achieve by repudiating the intent test of Mobile v. Bolden, 1980, and would prevent minority voters who have clearly been denied an opportunity to elect representatives of their choice from establishing a critical element of a vote dilution claim. In amending Section 2, Congress rejected the requirement announced by this court in Bolden that Section 2 plaintiffs must prove the discriminatory intent of state or local governments in adopting or maintaining the challenged electoral mechanism. Appellant's suggestion that the discriminatory intent of individual white voters must be proved in order to make out a Section 2 claim must fail for the reasons Congress rejected the intent test with respect to governmental bodies. The Senate report states that one reason the Senate committee abandoned the intent test was that the committee heard persuasive testimony that the intent test is unnecessarily divisive because it involves charges of racism on the part of individual officials or entire communities. The committee found the testimony of Dr. Arthur S. Fleming, chairman of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, particularly persuasive. He testified, Under an intent test, Litigators representing excluded minorities will have to explore the motivations of individual council members, mayors, and other citizens. The question would be whether their decisions were motivated by invidious racial considerations. Such inquiries can only be divisive, threatening to destroy any existing racial progress in a community. It is the intent test, not the results test that would make it necessary to brand individuals as racist in order to obtain judicial relief. The grave threat to racial progress and harmony which Congress perceived from requiring proof that racism caused the adoption or maintenance of a challenged electoral mechanism 
is present to a much greater degree in the proposed requirement that plaintiffs demonstrate that racial animosity determined white voting patterns. Under the old intent test, plaintiffs might succeed by proving only that a limited number of elected officials were racist. Under the new intent test, plaintiffs would be required to prove that most of the white community is racist in order to obtain judicial relief. It is difficult to imagine a more racially divisive requirement. A second reason Congress rejected the old intent test was that in most cases it placed an inordinately difficult burden on Section 2 plaintiffs. The new intent test would be equally, if not more, burdensome. In order to prove that a specific factor, racial hostility, determined white voters' ballots, it would be necessary to demonstrate that other potentially relevant causal factors such as socioeconomic characteristics and candidate expenditures, do not correlate better than racial animosity with white voting behavior. As one commentator has explained, many of these independent variables would be all but impossible for a social scientist to operationalize as interval-level independent variables for use in a multiple regression equation whether on a stepwise basis or not. To conduct such an extensive statistical analysis as this implies, moreover, can become prohibitively expensive. Compared to this sort of effort, proving discriminatory intent in the adoption of an at-large election system is both simple and inexpensive. The final and most dispositive reason the Senate report repudiated the old intent test was that it asked the wrong question. Amended, Section 2 asks instead whether minorities have equal access to the process of electing their representatives. Focusing on the discriminatory intent of the voters rather than the behavior of the voters also asks the wrong question. All that matters under Section 2 and under a functional theory of vote dilution is voter behavior, not its explanations. Moreover, as we have explained in detail, requiring proof that racial considerations actually caused voter behavior will result, contrary to congressional intent, in situations where a black minority that functionally has been totally excluded from the political process, will be unable to establish a Section 2 violation. The Senate report's remark concerning the old intent test thus is pertinent to the new test. The requirement that a court make a separate finding of intent after accepting the proof of the factors involved in the white v. register analysis would seriously cloud the prospects of eradicating the remaining instances of racial discrimination in American elections. We therefore decline to adopt such a requirement. In sum, we would hold that the legal concept of racially polarized voting, as it relates to claims of vote dilution, refers only to the existence of a correlation between the race of voters and the selection of certain candidates. Plaintiffs 
need not prove causation or intent in order to prove a prima facie case of racial block voting, and defendants may not rebut that case with evidence of causation or intent. Part 4 The Legal Significance of Some Black Candidates' Success Section A North Carolina and the United States maintain that the district court failed to accord the proper weight to the success of some black candidates in the challenged districts. Black residents of these districts, they point out, achieved improved representation in the 1982 General Assembly election. They also note that blacks in House District 23 have enjoyed proportional representation consistently since 1973 and that blacks in the other districts have occasionally enjoyed nearly proportional representation. This electoral success demonstrates conclusively, appellants and the United States argue, that blacks in those districts do not have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Essentially, appellants and the United States contend that if a racial minority gains proportional or nearly proportional representation in a single election, that fact alone precludes, as a matter of law, finding a Section 2 violation. Section 2B provides that the extent to which members of a protected class have been elected to office is one circumstance which may be considered. The Senate Committee Report also identifies the extent to which minority candidates have succeeded as a pertinent factor. However, the Senate Report expressly states that the election of a few minority candidates does not necessarily foreclose the possibility of dilution of the black vote, noting that if it did, the possibility exists that the majority citizens might evade Section 2 by manipulating the election of a safe minority candidate. The Senate Committee decided instead to require an independent consideration of the record. The Senate report also emphasizes that the question whether the political processes are equally open depends upon a searching practical evaluation of the past and present reality. Thus, the language of Section 2 and its legislative history plainly demonstrate that proof that some minority candidates have been elected does not foreclose a Section 2 claim. Moreover, in conducting its independent consideration of the record and its searching practical evaluation of the past and present reality, the District Court could appropriately take account of the circumstances surrounding recent Black electoral success in deciding its significance to Appellee's claim. In particular, the Senate report makes clear the Court could properly notice the fact that Black electoral success 
increased markedly in the 1982 election, an election that occurred after the instant lawsuit had been filed, and could properly consider to what extent the pendency of this very litigation might have worked a one-time advantage for Black candidates in the form of unusual organized political support by white leaders concerned to forestall single-member districting. Nothing in the statute or its legislative history prohibited the court from viewing, with some caution, black candidates' success in the 1982 election, and from deciding on the basis of all the relevant circumstances to accord greater weight to Black's relative lack of success over the course of several recent elections. Consequently, we hold that the district court did not err, as a matter of law, in refusing to treat the fact that some Black candidates have succeeded as dispositive of Apelli's Section 2 claim. Where multi-member districting generally works to dilute the minority vote, it cannot be defended on the ground that it sporadically and serendipitously benefits minority voters. Section B The district court did err, however, in ignoring the significance of the sustained success black voters have experienced in House District 23. In that district, the last six elections have resulted in proportional representation for black residents. This persistent proportional representation is inconsistent with the Pelley's allegation that the ability of black voters in District 23 to elect representatives of their choice is not equal to that enjoyed by the white majority. In some situations, it may be possible for Section 2 plaintiffs to demonstrate that such sustained success does not accurately reflect the minority group's ability to elect its preferred representatives, but appellees have not done so here. Appellees presented evidence relating to Black electoral success in the last three elections. They failed utterly, though, to offer any explanation for the success of black candidates in the previous three elections. Consequently, we believed that the district court erred as a matter of law in ignoring the sustained success black voters have enjoyed in House District 23 and would reverse with respect to that district. Part 5. Ultimate Determination of Vote Dilution Finally, appellants and the United States dispute the district court's ultimate conclusion that the multi-member districting scheme at issue in this case deprived black voters of an equal opportunity to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Section A. As an initial matter, both North Carolina and the United States contend that the district court's ultimate conclusion that the challenged multi-member districts operate 
to dilute black citizens' votes is a mixed question of law and fact, subject to de novo review on appeal. In support of their proposed standard of review, they rely primarily on Bose Corp. v. Consumers Union of U.S., 1984, a case in which we reconfirmed that, as a matter of constitutional law, there must be independent appellate review of evidence of actual malice in defamation cases. Appellants and the United States argue that because a finding of vote dilution under amended Section 2 requires the application of a rule of law to a particular set of facts, it constitutes a legal rather than factual determination. Neither appellants nor the United States cite our several precedents in which we have treated the ultimate finding of vote dilution as a question of fact subject to the clearly erroneous standard of Rule 52A. In Register, we noted that the district court had based its conclusion that minority voters in two multi-member districts in Texas had less opportunity to participate in the political process than majority voters on the totality of the circumstances and stated that, quote, we are not inclined to overturn these findings, representing, as they do, a blend of history and an intensely local appraisal of the design and impact of the multi-member district in the light of past and present reality, political and otherwise, unquote. Quoting this passage from Register with approval, we expressly held in Rogers v. Lodge that the question whether an at-large election system was maintained for discriminatory purposes and subsidiary issues, which include whether that system had the effect of diluting the minority vote, were questions of fact, reviewable under Rule 52A's clearly erroneous standard. Similarly, in City of Rome v. United States, we declared that the question whether certain electoral structures had a discriminatory effect in the sense of diluting the minority vote was a question of fact subject to clearly erroneous review. We reaffirm our view that the clearly erroneous test of Rule 52A is the appropriate standard for appellate review of a finding of vote dilution. As both amended Section 2 and its legislative history make clear, in evaluating a statutory claim of vote dilution through districting, the trial court is to consider the totality of the circumstances and to determine, based upon a searching practical evaluation of the past and present reality, whether the political process is equally open to minority voters. This determination is peculiarly dependent upon the facts of each case and requires an intensely local appraisal of the design and impact of the contested electoral mechanisms. 
The fact that amended Section 2 and its legislative history provide legal standards which a court must apply to the facts in order to determine whether Section 2 has been violated does not alter the standard of review. As we explained in Bose, Rule 52A does not inhibit an appellate court's power to correct errors of law, including those that may infect a so-called mixed finding of law and fact, or a finding of fact that is predicated on a misunderstanding of the governing rule of law. Thus, the application of the clearly erroneous standard to the ultimate findings of vote dilution preserves the benefit of the trial court's particular familiarity with the indigenous political reality without endangering the rule of law. Section B. The district court in this case carefully considered the totality of the circumstances and found that in each district racially polarized voting, the legacy of official discrimination in voting matters, education, housing, employment, and health services, and the persistence of campaign appeals to racial prejudice acted in concert with the multi-member districting scheme to impair the ability of geographically insular and politically cohesive groups of Black voters to participate equally in the political process and to elect candidates of their choice. It found that the success a few Black candidates have enjoyed in these districts is too recent, too limited, and, with regard to the 1982 elections, perhaps too aberrational to disprove its conclusion. Accepting House District 23, with respect to which the district court committed legal error, we affirm the district court's judgment. We cannot say that the district court composed of local judges who are well acquainted with the political realities of the state clearly erred in concluding that use of a multi-member electoral structure has caused Black voters in the districts other than House District 23 to have less opportunity than white voters to elect representatives of their choice. The judgment of the district court is affirmed in part and reversed in part. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.